Notice, of course, how uh, central is uh, Eros in the uh, everything that we've talked about in the first part of this talk, uh, in the tantric symbolism and language, in the Kabbalistic <coughs> symbology and language, um, in the uh, relationship with the world of sense experience opening up in the movement towards the transcendent, uh, in the re-enchanting of the world, um, in the the very relationship with the world, all of that. So Eros, uh, when it is allowed to do its thing, when it is allowed to uh, inseminate, impregnate, galvanize the soul-making dynamic, the mutual uh, fertilization of eros, psyche, logos, the mutual complication, enrichment, deepening, widening, then it will affect the notion of the path and of awakening, uh, the sense and the vision of what that is, and also the relationship with uh, the senses and sense experience with the world, with life, and also, of course, with sexuality. So it's interesting historically, I'm I'm definitely not a historian, but um, it's interesting to notice, for example, in Buddhism, the uh, rise of Tantra historically, as a a historical evolution um, after the initial, uh, so-called the first turning of the wheel in the Pali Canon, and the Buddhist Tantra came afterwards. And in in Judaism as well, you have a song of, Song of Songs, uh, etc., and other other allusions earlier in the in the um, history of the text, um, with the emergence of the Kabbalah in the you know, uh, Middle Ages, and uh, and also of, of Hasidim, Hasidism in Eastern Europe in um, about the seventeenth century, and uh, after that, which started as a very radical. Um, mystical uh, kind of ecstatic uh, movement um, a real revolution if you like in uh, within this, the stream of, of Judaism of Orthodox Judaism and uh, now has I think kind of seems to have become something rather more conservative um, and, and really not so radical in that sense um, but in Judaism there's this uh, in Buddhism and in Judaism, uh, there's a gradual um, emergence or ascent or elevation of Eros historically. Also in Islam, uh, I think, with Rumi and Ibn Arabi pointing to these kind of things. Um, in Christianity, which maybe we'll come back to, although some people would argue that it was there right from the beginning in Jesus' uh, relationship um, either with Mary Magdalene or the so-called disciple that Jesus loved, which might have been um, a man, another man. Uh, but in terms of the main, what might have got then squeezed out, in terms of what's mainstream Orthodox and uh, uh, historically uh, sort of entrenched, um, and then in time, historically, gradual ascent, usually at the sides in the esoteric, um, sort of more elitist, if you like, uh, streams of the tradition. There was a gradual ascent of Eros. It seems that way to me, just uh, 
looking historically, and I, I could could be wrong, um, so that Eros becomes actually uh, more integral to the whole vision. Uh, it's given a more central place in spiritual experience, in the path, in these different traditions, and in the whole conceptual framework. Now, of course, many people would look at that and, for example, look at Buddhism as a deterioration from the sort of purity of the Pali Canon, as a pollution in time, a devolution, or people might look at it that way, but we could also say that it's a necessary evolution. There's something operating in all these uh, diverse uh, spiritual traditions that's kind of manifesting humanity's, if you like, spiritual genius, let's call it that, um, it, it, the intuition that reaches out and kind of gropes uh, in, in some way to formulate, to articulate, to create and discover a way of including Eros more centrally, sanctifying it, um, and also matter and also sexuality. So I, I wonder about seeing it that way. And it's interesting also, uh, I mean, I, I, I could speak uh, for myself and maybe for other people. I wonder if this reflects, uh, so you can see a historical evolution, but you could also maybe see for some people a personal evolution in their practice in the conception and what their eros is directed towards and what eros is taken to mean and, and where it um, moves and then in the whole vision of the path, etc. If the soul-making dynamic is allowed, eros psyche logos, this is what will happen. It will start to re-evaluate, reconfigure uh, the relationship with the senses, with the world, with sexuality, and in that with the whole uh, path uh, and goal of awakening. All of that. So it may happen on a personal level and it may happen on a historical level over centuries. Um, and it's interesting to see how they can mirror each other. Usually, I think, uh, in, I can't remember when it was, it talked about um, Nietzsche's phrase, I think his phrase was the myth of origins. Um, and we tend, that, uh, highlighting the fact that we tend to assume, or uh, most people tend to assume, that the first birth of a religion, of a philosophy, or an ideology is the most pure, the most authentic, the most radical, as in radix, as in root, and the most powerful, and therefore kind of try to scrape away um, historical accretions or cultural accretions and try to return to some kind of um, hypothetical uh, original form in the present or actually have a fantasy and, and kind of reconstruct um, that uh, vision in the present. Um, or, um, mixed with that, they're actually bringing the fantasy and preconceptions in and just take um, what doesn't challenge the current popular metaphysics and take that from this supposedly pure um, original version being the most radical, etc., the most powerful. Um, or actually just look at it in a way that the history and the knowledge of history just de deconstruct the whole thing with, with one's um, an historical analysis so that the whole edifice and the whole religious impulse and the whole religious 
creation and construction um, becomes devalued, dismissed. Um, any religion, any philosophy can just be can just be deconstructed historically in a way that it's uh, rendered almost valueless. There's a certain way of approaching it that way, a certain intention of approaching it that way. Um, but this Nietzsche pointed to this myth of origins, assuming that the first birth is the most pure, the most authentic, most radical, etc. Why not, though? Why not uh, regard religions and philosophies teleologically? We've talked about that word before, the telos, the aim. Where are they headed? What are they drawn to? So that um, the evolutions of, in, in this case, the different religions or Buddhism or whatever it is, and the telos is actually regarded as more authentic, more true, more radical, and more essential. This is upside down in the usual way we think. Um, but in other periods of history, Aristotle and, and uh, after that, um, this, was, this was regarded as a very valid way of thinking about causality. Um, and what about, is it possible to actually turn the whole thing on its head and see it differently? So whether it's slowly, gradually, or suddenly, um, human beings uh, think, reflect, intuit, experiment, create and discover uh, religious uh, forms and practical forms and practices and conceptual frameworks and experiences um, that actually are part of an evolution and moving towards something. As Michelangelo said of um, sculpture, he's uh, can't remember the exact words, but he's just removing um, uh, the bits of the marble to reveal uh, something that's already there, the statue that's already there in the marble. He's moving towards something, so to speak. I don't know if that's a very good analogy, actually. But um, The historical currents and events, then, are not so much regarded in a way that devalues and deconstructs and then dismisses, um, but we could even go a, a stage further and regard them, too, as uh, the operation of some greater intelligence. So even if there are historical factors coming in and adding to something and shaping and reformulating at different periods in the history and the evolution of a tradition, of a religion, even that could be regarded, for instance, as, as the kind of intelligence of, of the world soul operating to uh, um, inform and influence the evolution, if you like. All that is, is an intelligent operation of the world soul um, towards a telos, towards some goal. But that goal, unlike, uh, if you know Hegel's philosophy, unlike that, the goal is actually open-ended. So what's that? To have a telos, to have a goal, but actually it's open-ended. One never finally reaches it. There's this open-ended um, movement, but the evolution is regarded as towards more authenticity, if you like, towards more purity, towards more the radics, the radicality. Why can we not regard things that way? Actually, 
slight aside but relevant. Um, despite what I've just said, I know that um, there are uh, quite a few people around who believe and um, the sort of the initial um, some old scholarship uh, around Buddhist tantras which stated that they were just Buddhist tantrism was basically borrowed from or evolved from uh, Shivite Hindu tantrism and it was just a derivative thing and therefore the whole Vajrayana was a, again historical devolution a pollution of the pure original uh, Buddhist teaching by alien influences in India, etc., like that. Um, and in more recent scholarship, for example, um, uh, Benatosh Bhattacharya and, and others um, actually ha- ha- have pointed to it being quite the other way around, um, that um, in, their, in their research uh, indicating that Buddhist tantras actually had a big influence on the uh, evolution of Hindu tantrism. Uh, But that's all, and and in fact that um, mantras and dharanis and mandalas and mudras and all this kind of um, uh, tantric uh, notions and practices um, are actually present in Buddhist texts uh, as early as the first century of the common era, for example, in the Manjushri, Mahakalpa, and things like that. So that's interesting if we're going to play the game of what's the pure origin uh, of something and, and regard everything that comes afterwards as a sort of movement away from purity as opposed to regarding it holistically, teleologically, the other way around, a movement towards more what is authentic, a growth and evolution. Uh, but there is, it seems to me, as a non-historian, uh, a, a, a gradual ascent, if you like, of Eros historically, um, and therefore also of sexuality, that it becomes more integrated, less denigrated, more elevated, and as I said, given place, given place in the whole sort of spiritual outlook and approach, <clears throat> religious um, practice and thought. So, in uh, and you see this in Christianity, for example, the, uh, there was a 17th century Lutheran called Johann Gichtel, and listen to this for uh, some instructions. Um, uh, to Sophia, we have to explain. Sophia is um, find it in the Old Testament, in the in the Bible, I think in Proverbs as well. Um, literally means wisdom. It's Greek for wisdom, um, but uh, it, she is regarded as the first, uh, the first, if you like, um, being or uh, that 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 God created. So she was with God and God's love um, from almost from the beginning so to speak. Um, so she's not God, but she's somehow divine and, if you like, part of God or something like that. So there's different kind of um, ideation around who exactly she is, but it, she's a feminine uh, kind of quasi-divine figure of devotion uh, in, and prominent in different streams within the, the Christian tradition. Listen to this from Johann Gichtel in the 17th century. To Sophia, as the essential love, make yourself more united, more known. 
So these are instructions for a practitioner. Make yourself more united, more known to Sophia. And while praying, focus your imagination on her as you do on your wife and give yourself over to her way of loving with your body, soul and spirit. Give yourself over to her way of loving with your body, soul and spirit. You will find within your soul a great relief and sweetness and an excellent strength in your prayer. Uh, and actually wrapped up in this teaching about Sophia is a whole cosmo, cosmo what we could call cosmology or cosmopoesis in, in, in our outlook. Um, and he says that, um, he points out that Sophia's presence uh, is regarded as permeating the created world. Uh, the skies, the plants, the flowers, the metals, everything. Um, so that, he says, He writes, we also recognize Sophia in this created world, since she is emanated in the heavens and on the earth, and in everything that grows, and is to be seen and found on the firmament, and likewise in herbs, flowers, their colors, odors, taste, or virtues, also in metals of the earth and their tinctures. So there is, uh, one can sense in there, there's a whole actual quite elaborate conceptual framework and theology involved in Sophia and relationship with the world and levels of existence and uh, what's called in the Hermetic and other traditions um, sympathies, harmonic resonances between, for example, metals and their tinctures and certain herbs and colors and odors and tastes with, with, um, with, if you like, spiritual dimensions. However, Johann Gistel and uh, the other theosophists that um, had a similar kind of outlook in relation to Sophia and uh, erotic relations with Sophia in the imaginal uh, prayer, um, still uh, often regarded actual physical sensual relations, even within the context of marriage, um, as much less preferable. Somehow there's still a bias and perhaps a result of entrenched views um, regarding sexuality and the so-called battle against the flesh, which is such a entrenched um, uh, notion in, 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 well, both Western and Eastern thought. Um, goes back to Plato, probably even before that, and, um, and reflected in, in the monotheistic traditions, etc., um, but it's striking to listen to that as a, a kind of imaginal meditation instruction, similar to what we've been talking about. Um, and I'm also, what comes to mind is um, a piece of writing by Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk who died, I think, in 1968. Beautiful, uh, beautiful writer, beautiful person. And he has a really gorgeous piece called, I think it's called Hagia Sophia, if you ever come across it. And he describes uh, waking up in hospital, in a hospital bed, uh, with a nurse there, and uh, kind of by his bedside, opens his eyes and sees this nurse, and sees in her face and in her manner and her the tenderness of her ministrations, um, he sees Sophia, he perceives her uh, theoph. The- Theophanically, um, something very, very beautiful there, and he weaves a beautiful piece of writing around that. And um, I wonder uh, how much that perception there was a result, again, of his personal, the personal evolution of his of his practice.
I don't know enough about uh, where he came from. He certainly was living as a celibate monk, a Trappist monk, very strict uh, order at that time. Um, I'm told that he had, or I heard somewhere else, that then he did, in fact, end up having a, some kind of presumably unconsummated relationship or friendship with with a nurse. And I'm just wondering, uh, again, what the play there was of imaginal theophanic perception tied into a, a beautiful, mystical, multidimensional um, theology and conceptual framework and vision, and then actually allowed to permeate the, the human relations uh, and still uh, open to that multidimensionality. I don't know. Um, in uh, Christian Gnostic traditions, um, and I'm, I'm aware there's a, there's a lot of... Um, confusion around what that word Gnosticism means and whether it even actually really refers to anything. But there's a text called The Greater Questions of Mary. And uh, here it describes Jesus in the presence of Mary, who's probably Mary Magdalene, um, produced a woman from his side, began to have intercourse with her and partook of his emission, uh, meaning that he ate his ejaculate, his semen, partook of his emission to show that, quote, thus we must do that we may live. Thus we must do that we may live. So that's a very striking uh, kind of depiction of scenario there. Um, you'll notice just, you know, how um, in these historic texts, how... Uh, heteronormal the bias is so um, you know it's, uh, there is that bias there and it's reflected in the in the text and the depictions here but one wonders in this uh, great question is a man that image there of Jesus doing that um, is this talking about an imaginal practice that one does this imaginally is it talking about an actual practice actually having so, I mean you can't actually produce a woman from your side but maybe actually having sex and actually um, partaking and eating of the, the sexual fluids, etc. And apparently there were certain sects, I think one sect was called the Barbarites, which actually did that uh, as part of their religious uh, practice and ritual. So is it imaginal practice it's referring to? Is it, is it actual practice? Or is it just metaphorical and uh, representational, if you like, a reference to um, semen um, for, because in a lot of Gnostic texts, apparently, uh, the divine element in humans that must be gathered during the process of salvation was metaphorically called semen. So maybe these uh, Jesus and the woman and the intercourse and the and the semen these are all just symbolic metaphors. So what is it? An imaginal practice? An actual practice? A metaphor? And people would in, interpret it, uh, apparently, historically, they've interpreted it very differently. Similarly, in, uh, in, in Buddhist Tantra, so the uh, beginning of the Guya Samaja Tantra, the opening lines of the Guya Samaja Tantra, which is the root, the most important Tantra in the... Uh, for many Tibetan Buddhists, but particularly for the Gelug tradition, which is the tradition of the Dalai Lama. Uh, it starts like this, and I, I've heard that uh, most tantras, or, or at least many tantras, start with the same opening line. 
Ewan Mayashutam, this is a Sanskrit. Ewan Mayashutam, thus have I heard. Kazmin Samai Bhagawan, Sarvatatagata Kaya Vakchita Hridaya Vajra Yoshit Bageshu Ujahara. Which means, actually, one of the things about this is it can mean many different things. And like I said before, it's something to do with the way uh, Sanskrit can kind of fit words together. So you can have lots of different permutations um, of what it might mean. Um, and I would say that plurality of possible meanings is uh, implicit in the in the Sanskrit in the constructions is intended. So it invites the the reader into a kind of poetic participation with the text uh, and exploration. Also, that implies a practice. Um, uh, a meditative encounter with the text that must include a flexibility of imagination, view, and conceptual constructs. So it's not um, just a text you read for sort of information. Uh, it's multifaceted, and uh, you enter into a text like this um, uh, with th- these multiple meanings as a kind of um, offering um, uh, of different meditative stances, if you like. Op- a door uh, is, is open to different meditative possibilities, imaginal and conceptual. Uh, in the very kind of multi uh, polysemous possibilities of of the language, <clears throat> so um, this that whole, uh, if you like, intrinsically ambiguous or polysemic articulation, it supports not just a poetic and practical approach and a sort of openness of interpretability. Um, it also supports a whole conception and view of the image or of any perception of reality as multi-leveled, not singular, um, possessive instead of many faces all at once, um, none of which have an existence independent of the mind, but which are, if you like, only, only elicited or activated by the way of looking or interpreting that the mind has in that moment in relationship with this image. Yeah, so there's parallels here with, could be parallels with Tantric and Vajrayana language in the Tantras and um, uh, kind of what we're talking about with the imaginal practices and also, as I've referred to in the past, with Kabbalistic um, teachings regarding the Bible and other sacred texts. But if we go back to that Sanskrit uh, opening line... Uh, thus have I heard, um, at, at, on one occasion, the Blessed One uh, was dwelling in, now you could translate it, in the vaginas of the, uh, let's say, the vaginas of the diamond maidens of the uh, heart essence of the body, speech, and mind of all targeters. At one time, the Blessed One was dwelling in the vaginas of the diamond maidens, in or of the heart essence of the body, speech, and mind of all targeters. That word that I'm translating as vagina, that actually is often translated as vagina bhaga, um, too has many possible meanings, so it can actually just it can mean vagina. It can also mean um, enjoyment or happiness or prosperity. It can mean place or inheritance. Um, 
it can also mean love and sexual passion. So it's a multi-faceted uh, word. Um, but it's an interesting choice of word there, and, and that together with all the um, tantric symbolism, etc. Now you get commentaries on the tantras, uh, on, on this kind of uh, sentence there, which assign each word sort of different levels of meaning. And so they would say that the bhaga really refers to the clear light mind, or emptiness, or, or this or that, so that the Buddha was residing in the clear light of emptiness, uh, etc. And it would all, each of these words uh, would have different, uh, different levels of meaning. Uh, but again, we're left with this, well, what, what actually is the tantra, Buddhist tantrism getting at with its references, its sexual symbology and references and languages there? Um, and again, uh, like we talked about in the iconography of the uh, the yabyum, un- um, the, the uh, sexual union of Buddha and his consort, is it just symbolic? So that's one one option, is that the eros depicted, um, I will refer to the sexuality, the sexual, whatever it is, fluids or organs or energy that are referred to, are these just symbols? So that, for example, the yabyum, uh, the, the, the sexual union of <coughs> the Buddha and the consort are... Uh, is just the union of wisdom and means that we talked about before, and it's just a symbol for that. It's only a symbol. And so you get commentators who insist on that. This has nothing to do with sexuality, nothing to do with that. It's purely a symbol for um, spiritual uh, orientations or realities or e- e- uh, unions, etc., but one possibility is, is it symbolic, or perhaps only symbolic? Another possibility is that um, sexuality, sexual uh, energy, etc., is regarded in Tantra, or used in Tantra, as a vehicle, so it's purely practical, excuse me, as a means, an expedient means. It's just because it's a powerful energy which, when gathered and channeled in the body and in the energy body, can give rise to great bliss and actually shifts in consciousness. So this is, again, a very common presentation of, of the tantric um, uh, relationship or view of, of sexuality, sexual energy, sexual fluids, etc. Um, it's just really that. You're gathering a certain very powerful energy and because of its power, because sexuality is regarded as the most powerful energy that a human being uh, kind of is has or is subject to, um, it's powerful enough that if it's gathered in a certain way, channeled in a certain way, preserved in a certain way, and then and then channeled, um, it can bring this bliss and a shift in consciousness. Now, for some, actually, it's just about the bliss um, in the kind of pop versions. Um, or a shift in consciousness uh, is possible that will... Uh, enable one, the consciousness, to open to emptiness or clear light without having to do a lot of um, kind of uh, uh, other practices which are harder and take uh, take longer, etc., to develop. Um, 
but but this is a second possibility that that the, the tantric perspective and relationship with sexuality and sexual energy is really just as a vehicle. And if it was another energy in human beings, or that human beings were subject to, that was um, more powerful um, and was more expedient, I don't know what that would be, eating eating chocolate or whatever, then they would just use that instead. Um, so it's there's nothing about sexuality per se that's interesting, other than it's just a vehicle, it's just a means of getting to A to B that's kind of a turbocharged one, a turbocharged vehicle, if you like. That would be a second possibility. Or is the tantric uh, view and relationship and conception of and regard of uh, sexuality uh, and eros, um, is it actually attempting a re-sanctification, a re-enchanting, a divinizing, perhaps perhaps a kind of transubstantiation, but certainly a re-sanctification, a re-enchanting, a divinizing of what was often seen before that as not holy, not sacred. A re-sanctification of sexuality which was regarded as a defilement. So, symbol only? of something spiritual, um, a vehicle, or a re-sanctification of sexuality itself, a re-inclusion of sexuality itself in itself. So with the vehicle, it's not that sexuality is itself holy, because it's just an expedient means. It could be replaced by any anything. But in the third option, it's actually that sexuality itself is being re-sanctified. So people have very different um, uh, interpretations of tantric texts and teachings and all that. Um, or is it all three? Is it all three? That it is symbolic, that it has this multi-dimensional, multi-leveled um, sort of resonances and reflections. Sexuality, eros, sexual imagery. That yes... Uh, it, we are um, certainly we, uh, it, it, it could be a re-sanctification and, and also a vehicle for us at least for how, how we are thinking of it I would say it's all three it does have this um, multi-leveled multi-dimensionality to it of, of symbology of uh, what the image kind of reflects what the eros how it's mirrored uh, and it is most certainly a re-sanctification. I would like to see it that way. There's a, 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 a widening, a deepening, an extending of what is regarded as sacred. Re-enchanting of the cosmos. And, and very much part of that is, is the, the view and the relationship of, of sexuality. And not just in a one-dimensional human way as expressing love and our right to pleasure. And as a vehicle, except that for us the vehicle is not so much about the energy. I mean, that's fine, and I would actually say there's more possibilities there with the energetics, because you can take any opening of the energy body in a number of different directions if you know how to navigate it. But primarily, primarily the, the vehicle for us is as a vehicle of soul-making, because the eros and the sexual imagery and the um, erotic, imaginal, actually 
um, impregnate the imagery, give it dimensionality and open up that soul making and open up the divinizing the perception of dimensionality and divinity. So it's a vehicle in that sense, but it's a vehicle for the imaginal and the soul-making. <clears throat> but in all this, you can see in, in these um, examples I've been given from uh, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition and the Buddhist Tantra tradition, that um, sexuality is kind of um, reflected in and reflects and implicated in and involved in and affects the perception of cosmos, world, and divinity. So there's a kind of mirroring here. We've talked about this in these different examples. So the, the human sexual... Um, as I said, reflects, mirrors, expresses, manifests, affects um, the, the cosmos, the world, and, uh, and the divine. So I remember um, an image, I, I shared one very small part of the image um, a few talks ago. Um, and... Uh, It was where the, um, the the beautiful woman took my hands and placed them in the prayer posture and then mirrored that uh, with our fingertips touching and drew my attention to our relationship rather than uh, what was what part of me wanted to get caught up in uh, some larger political issue. Um, Following on from that, what happened in that image is at one point I I take the sun out of my heart. The sun feels like it's right, right at my heart center in the center of my chest is this really radiant bright sun and I take it out um, of, of my heart center to give it to her. It feels like an, I want to do that as an offering of, of love and it seems natural to the image um, it seems so at first but then I become unsure uh, in two respects one is I'm unsure if I'm making this up if I think where, where did I get this from This is it is it that I maybe was looking at some alchemical text briefly and I've just forgotten about it I certainly didn't recall ever seeing anything like that but I somehow become suspicious that it's just some idea I got from some something that alchemy or Jung or something or other, um, and and secondly, it just feels like it's not the right thing to do. In terms of the first uh, kind of suspicion or hesitation, there, um, I would make the point now. This was a few years ago, but now it seems clear to me that. It absolutely doesn't matter if that idea or that gesture or that movement was stimulated or seeded by something I had read uh, somewhere in a, some text or something or flicked through or seen a picture or whatever it was, um, something similar to that. It does not matter. That doesn't make it unauthentic. What matters is the soul-making. So whether the idea, you know, people sometimes would be more impressed if if I really hadn't seen anything like that before, and then I found it in an alchemical text, and um, this is the sort of thing Jung, Jung would do quite a lot and point to the uh, 
reality of universal archetypes, etc. For me, it doesn't matter. What matters is the soul-making. And there's an acknowledgement that that soul-making can be fed, and sometimes mysteriously so, uh, by by anything at all, by ideation, by reading, by hearing teachings, by uh, dreams, by wh- whatever it is. Um, more important was the second objection. It just felt somehow, as I did it, that actually this is not the right thing to do. And uh, more important was that the sun um, stayed in my heart. That was part of um, preserving uh, the uh, the polarity, in fact. Because later, uh, she seems to have... Uh, the moon in her heart center. Uh, and this kind of gave another dimension to the polarity. There's the sun in my heart center and the moon in hers. And there's this attraction between sun and moon and polarity there between sun and moon, but also a kind of balance. And all that is mirrored somehow in our erotic, imaginal relating. The attraction, the polarity, and the balance. And in that, it, it seemed like that attraction, balance and polarity had kind of uh, co- what I would now call cosmopoetic overtones. Um, and again, later this spilled out in, into the world in terms of the, the cosmopoesis. So this, this image stayed for a few days and it sort of came back in different meditations or I, I brought it back, but oftentimes it would just come back and um, it was more involved erotically, etc., with some sexual imagery, etc. And I remember uh, uh, at that time try, trying to kind of, I could feel my mind trying to just kind of grasp intellectually what was going on um, what does this mean? What does this sun and what does this moon represent? And um, trying to fix this or that meaning. Um, And kind of letting go of that a a little bit and and more getting an intuitive, sort of vague and subtle sense um, of this sun and moon and this um, uh, polarity and this balance it was reflecting something cosmic. It was reflecting a kind of cosmic harmony or relationship, um, or or a part or a dimension, if you like, of the cos of some kind of cosmic harmony. And and that harmony and relationship was was sort of existed um, already um, as as a perception. So it wasn't that. Um, it wasn't that this was kind of saying something about me and my psychological balance, etc., of balancing sun and moon and male and masculine and feminine and all that. I was trying to make it sort of mean something like that, but just relaxing a little bit and actually getting a sense of, you know, this is something beyond, beyond the beyond just the personal, let's put it that way. Um, it was already existing as as a kind of cosmic balance that uh, was already present to be realized and appreciated um, rather than telling me something about what I needed to do to rebalance myself or something like that. That was the sense of it. And also in that sense, in that kind of cosmic uh, 
multi-dimensional, multi-level sort of mirroring, there was a sense then, of, of course, of the cosmos not being separate from me, not being separate from my imagination. Uh, so again, something in the erotic imaginal, mirroring and reflecting uh, something, uh, a level of the uh, cosmos, of, of, of the divine. And we can say there's a kind of alchemy, there's a kind of magic going on there, but it's in the perception, in the sense of the world and of the human being. Right? That's the kind of alchemy and magic that we're interested in. And uh, again, there's, a, there's another text, a hermetic text uh, called the Asclepius, and... Um, very old text, and it describes, or it states that the act of sexual union between two lovers is a divine mystery. That sex itself is a divine mystery, not only, it says, because it's uh, an image, it's a, a mirroring of the productivity and the androgynous unity of God, that means the um, transgender or bigender uh, hermaphroditic nature of God being neither male nor female both and neither etc uh, again actually in, in this in this text there's still the sort of heteron, heteronormal bias there of he, normal, normalizing bias of, of uh, heterosexual <coughs> orientations um, but you know this is this is a hopefully a progress in, in history where the logos, the ideation, the image of what uh, sexuality can be, etc., might, might be uh, hopefully growing. But uh, this, the act of sexual union in this text is, not, is a divine mystery, not just because it's an image of the productivity and androgynous unity of God, but also because it is actually possible uh, for both of the lovers to experience that original androgyny. In other words, to experience another dimension, if you like, of, of their being, but also of God's being, of, of the divine being. It continues, though, but for ignorant and irreverent people, uh, sex, it is a mere act of the flesh. So again, it's not. It's it's something that uh, a certain logos, a certain way of looking, a certain reverential approach um, transubstantiates something, transforms the perception of something, opens up uh, a vision, is is discovered there. A dimensionality and a divinity is is discovered in 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 the sexuality. I don't know if you uh, ever have had the sense of um, actual sex uh, as a kind of uh, act of uh, cosmic and divine mirroring. So the actual uh, participation in something that's much bigger uh, some something of the human sexuality reflecting, mirroring, echoing, participating in uh, something uh, much larger, much more multi-dimensional, 
cosmic and divine dimensions in the very sexuality, in the very uh, sex. Quite um, possible. That, that hermetic text, the Asclepius, also uh, says that the the um, act of sexual union mirrors the union of the human being with the divine. So there's all kinds of mirroring going on. You get this sense in a lot of these uh, traditions and texts, something emerging that's kind of pointing to a, a multi-level, multi-dimensional, multi-faceted, mirroring, echoing, reflecting um, interconnectedness, inner and outer. It's all interconnected, mirroring, influencing each other. This word participation there's a mutual participation that's multi-leveled and multi-dimensional. This chitta, this mind and heart, this soul, this body, uh, it participates uh, in in the uh, the soul, if you like, the body of the cosmos and of the divine. Participation. This chitta, your chitta, my soul, my body, your body participating in mirroring, influencing, completely connected, the inner and the outer, the personal and the universal, the human and the divine, the material and the spiritual. But this is um, a way of looking. It's an invitation to a way of looking, rather than, as I'm sure it can sound uh, very easily, just some very abstract and very strange idea. It's an invitation to a way of looking. We can make this a reality. In a sense, you make it, um, you open to it as an experience by entertaining certain ways of looking. By, through the imaginal perception, through the attitude, through the heartfulness, through the, the soul-making looking, soul-making sensing. It becomes actually lived and actually materialized. The spiritualization of matter, the materialization of spirit. Apparently in... Um, Many, uh, I think, medieval Jewish prayer books. There was a an Aramaic formula um, that preceded certain prayers, or many of the prayers, and um, and some or all of the ritual commandments. The what's called the mitzvot um, in the prayer book, and it said something like, um, "Liturgy is performed, or this or that is performed, for the sake of the union." of the Holy One, blessed be He, with His Shekhinah, with, uh, with the Divine Presence or the Immanence. So this prayer that I'm going to say now, this ritual that I'm going to do, whatever it is, washing my hands or eating bread or drinking wine or w- w- whatever, um, this is performed for the sake of the union of the Holy One with, with, with His uh his divine imminence, his imminence. So again, this this marrying of the of the levels, the transcendent and the and the imminent. Um, 
erotic imagery, erotic language running through these different traditions and, and emphasized again and again uh, the multi-leveled, multi-faceted, uh, multi-reflecting uh, nature of all this. And one, one wonders, you know, historically, and I don't know enough about it, what that then uh, was taken to imply uh, by different people at different times and different places in history and these different traditions, what that was taken to imply for the, um, uh, for the, the nature and the place of um, human eros and sexuality and, and, and what it was taken to imply for the meaningfulness all this erotic sexual description of the in, of the divine realms um, and the meaning of prayer and what that does and, and other rituals and and actions reflecting influencing etc but what was that taken to mean uh, regarding the meaningfulness the nature the place of human eros and sexuality it seems to me, and again, I'm really not a historian, that, that, that there was uh, there was a lot of tension in that question and a lot of ambivalence historically uh, around what it actually meant or implied for actual human uh, sexual relations. But even that aside, all this is really quite different, I think, from the way we're used to thinking of things in, in this era of, of modernism and secular modernism and humanism. Secular humanism. So I was raised uh, in London uh, in uh, at an Orthodox Jewish upbringing, a very, very strict. And um, the had to do all these follow all these rules and rituals and you can't do this on the Sabbath and you have to do this and you have to wear that and you can't, um, a lot of rules. And But it was all, the whole um, explanation of it that I was given in that Jewish education in my family and, um, and at school, um, it was all very literal and all actually very one-dimensional in fact. And so there was a lot of fear as a young child, a fear of breaking these rules and these commandments and God being angry and punishing you and all this kind of stuff. And it was kind of enforced, um, it, it, both at the school and, and in my family home. And it seemed to me at some point I, I really rebelled against it, that there was just a lot of I's being dotted and um, T's being crossed or whatever the phrase is. A lot of um, kind of... Uh, very particular attention to details that had that seemed I didn't have the language perhaps at the time just seemed to be lacking a whole um, level amplitude of dimensionality of meaning and resonance there it was just this kind of literal one-dimensional fulfilling of certain commandments a lot of them seemed completely bizarre and uh, for just as soon as I hit my teenage years I think pretty soon um, I became an atheist and uh, just just the whole thing uh, didn't m- m- just seem stupid to me um, and I was a sort of secret atheist um, and then a much less secret one um, interesting in atheist is also just in the grip of a very literalist view so there's a literalist view of all these um, what's called the mitzvot, the, the, the commandments, the, the rituals, etc. And there's a literalist view of how silly they are. And just taking the whole thing, the sense of divinity and the sense of the rituals and what they're for and all that, just, just both sides are just 
literalisms arguing with each other. Uh, compare that with um, the more Kabbalistic or mystical kind of relationship with reviewing of um, participation, participatory understanding um, of of these uh, rules and uh, ritual elements, etc. In in Judaism, so I'm going to paraphrase a writer called Daniel Matt, who writes about um, Jewish mysticism, um, but I could have picked um, quite a few other writers. So this is. Um, <clears throat> quite a minority view within the uh, within the the, the Jewish religion, um, but it it's reflective of the uh, certain strands of mysticism within that. And I'll, I'll paraphrase what he writes. So Kabbalah he says constructs its mythical realm out of the elements of Jewish law. In other words, here is the elements of Jewish law: these rules and rituals that one is told that just come down to one. Some of them seem pretty bizarre. And rather what the Kabbalah does is this this spiritual genius of approaching something that's given and finding, giving it, creating and discovering whole other dimensions of meaningfulness, invigorating it with life in a participatory way. So Kabbalah constructs his mythical realm out of the elements of Jewish law. The commands of the ruler of the world become instead sacraments and mystery rites that simultaneously reflect and influence the pulsating life of the universe. Sacraments and mystery rites that simultaneously reflect and influence the pulsating life of the universe. The code of law becomes a secret code. Judaism is transformed into a mystery religion. Symbolic and magical aspects of the mitzvot, the ritual commandments, are alternately emphasized. Symbolic and magical alternately emphasized. The mystic integrates himself, again, gender bias language, the mystic integrates himself into the pattern of the cosmos and stimulates the flow of divine emanation integrates himself into the pattern of the cosmos and stimulates the flow of emanation. His ritual act represents the divine and calls it forth. Represents the divine and calls it forth. Uh, Not a rationalization of these laws in earthly terms. For example, you can only eat this because it's actually better for your health or you can't eat that because it's not good for you or whatever it is. Um, The Kabbalists expand the dimensions. It's not just rational and earthly now. The human actor is now a protagonist in the cosmic drama. The mitzvot are literally the essence of life according to the Kabbalist Joseph Kikatila. Um, His life and God's life. They are not reducible to autonomous reason. It's not just kind of, uh, you can think of as a practical kind of uh, humanistic reasons for them, nor are they simply imposed heteronomously. In other words, a sort of um, separate God just says, you better do this and watch out if you don't. Um, as extensions of the divine qualities, they, the commandments, the mitzvot, the ritual acts, permeate the universe and constitute its fabric. You know, what, a, what a different view that is, and the beauty, the fullness, the multidimensionality of that creative engagement with this um, 
received tradition to give it whole other dimensions of life there, whole other dimensions of beauty. So this is different than a kind of view of ritual that if um, we don't do X ritual or whatever, the sun won't uh, rise tomorrow or, or whatever, um, uh, which is clearly not true and quite provable to be not true. Excuse me. Um, so it's not, it's not that, that kind of literalism, and it's neither the literalism of that kind of one-dimensionality of the, the, the child's view of ritual or the simplistic atheist kind of literalism. How do we conceive? How do we look at the elements that we are given? How do we look at life, action, our human being, divinity? How do we conceive of these in ways that are soul-making? In, 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 in the broadest possible range and, and depth. In the Zohar uh, and, and these Kabbalistic texts, Zohar is an ancient uh, Kabbalistic text um, from the early Middle Ages, I think, um, 12th century, I think. Uh, in, in the Zohar, the, the, again, this, this understanding is, is offered that the, the purpose um, of practice, spiritual practice, religious practice, the the purpose, not just meaning prayer, but meaning action, etc. The purpose is to mirror and affect the divine. The purpose is to mirror and affect the divine. So in the Zohar, uh, it says, in every uh, commandment, in every mitzvah, your effort is to unite the blessed Holy One and His Shekhinah. So that this, this transcendent uh, aspect of divinity with the immanence, with the, the divinity that permeates the world. Yes. Uh, you're in every ritual action, uh, your effort is to unite the Blessed Holy One and His and His Shina and this divine immanence. So that um, mystical understanding and enactment of the commandments of the mitzvah, if we're just staying in the in the Jewish tradition, for example, in our in our language, we would say mystical understanding and enactment of the mitzvah. We could say that the conceptual frameworks and the ways of looking we entertain, we skillfully use in our uh, in our life, in our meditation practice, open up perceptions, and also our action and our embodiment in the world, when they are and the world is seen as as uh, divine. Um, as a divine creation, uh, with that sense of duty and with that sense of participation, in the words of the Zohar, they serve to light up the queen. The queen is this divine immanence, the Shekhinah, this female aspect of God. Um, light up the queen to strip her of the dark clothes of literalness strip her of the dark clothes of literalness and adorn her with garments of shining colors of the mysteries of Torah. So, in Torah as a Jewish where we could say, strip her, strip the, the, the world, the, um, 
of the dark clothes of literalness and adorn her with garments of shining colours of the mysteries of the divine or if you like of the mysteries of the mandala of the mysteries of the Buddha's kayavachitta body, speech and mind uh, you can uh, the mysteries of the Buddha nature so we can it's a similar principle through the engagement of the erotic imaginal. It's a whole different way of um, entering into and uh, relating to and conceiving of and practicing whatever it is. Um, meditation, prayer, action in the world, embodiment, speech, all the beauty of that, the poetry of that, impregnating it with this uh, soul-making uh, potential seed life so in this in this view in this opening in this soul making perspective the cosmos is erotic and divine uh, and the eros is divine and we are implicated in that in that divine uh, erotic cosmos or divine cosmic eros. We are implicated in that. We reflect that. We echo it. It echoes us. We express it. We manifest it. We are involved. We are called on and we are necessary. In and through our perception, our imaginal perception, our practice, our meditative perception, our ways of looking, in and through our perception and in and through our action. So again, this is not a naive belief in the power of ritual or magic in some kind of very naive way, if, if there are even such people anymore who believe that, that um, which I'm sure there are. Um, it, not so much that as, as an alchemy of perception, an alchemy of the perception of the cosmos and of the human being. So it's not just intrapsychic psychology we're dealing with here. There's something about uh, that's that's um, inseminating and fueling and firing up an alchemical process uh, that involves our whole perception of ourselves, of each other, and of the whole cosmos. So, in and through perception, and in and through action, and that can include. Um, our eros, our er- erotics, and our sexual acts, our actual uh, s- sexual um, participation. So in other words, if we're including our action in this, then uh, we can include the sexual uh, actions as well, potentially. Not only symbol. They, have, they can be seen in this way too, in this larger um, soul-making way too. And eros, whether it's in, in the meditation, in the imaginal uh, perception, in, in the way we're relating to the senses and the way we move and act and embody in the world, whether it's actually in our um, sexual relations, uh, the eros... Um, as we've been saying all along, it um, ha- it brings with it the possibility uh, of stimulating and increasing the soul-making and expanding, enriching, deepening the sense of the sacred. Uh, 
there is then the tikkun haolam, the, the, the healing of the world in the perception. In the perception. So that we have this, uh, we, we, we have a kind of place in, in, in the cosmos then. And our, our perception, our thoughts, our vision, our ideation, our speech and action, our embodiment, our, our sexuality, a kind of, you could say, uh, has, a, has multi-leveled function. But there, and, and we have a place where integrated then is is not necessarily the, the heavy kind of responsibility. It's actually quite light because we see it's all empty. This is not um, a, a realist view. We're seeing image as image. But if we can find the way into this through the practice and through that opening up the the logos and and the imaginal perception and, and the whole ways of looking, then in the very non-realism of it and through that and through all that opening up, the world can be, is, it's, re, it's sacralized, it's re-sacralized. The world is sacralized and becomes infinitely revealing. It... Uh, the world is a world of infinite revelation. There's no end to the revelation in the world that the world is. The revelation of soul, of divinity, of Buddha nature. And the world, through this, uh, these practices and, and the ways of conceiving and entering, the world is sacralized and becomes uh, a, an infinite, potentially infinitely revealing through our perception and through our embodiment, including sexual. Very different than an objectified world. Sacralized, infinitely deep, infinitely opening, infinitely revealing, rather than just one-dimensional objects and the objectification of that. What is the difference in the embodiment there, the erotic embodiment of the pilgrim versus the tourist or the vacationer, as we've said many times now? This sacralization and this infinite revelation happens through the eros. To say how central that is, the eros. One last thing. Uh, in the creation of, of the divine, if you like, uh, in, in this in the healing of the divine, in the creation of the Buddha nature, which is implicit in, in what we've been presenting, in the creation excuse me, in the creation and discovery of the imaginal dimensions of the self, aspects of the self, of the other, of the world. In the erotic moving uh, towards, the, the erotic movement towards what is beyond, what is not yet quite known. 
the moving towards the angel out ahead in Corban's words, n- never, um, either never quite reaching it because the angel is always out ahead and keeps moving on um, itself, or uh, in never remaining at least in union uh, with with the angel or what is beyond. In all this, there's a kind of infinite movement or infinite potential of movement, potentially infinite movement, as we've talked about with the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic. There's telos here, there's moving towards, but that's open-ended. What I want to draw attention to in that now is the fact that all of this, this creation of divinity, this creation of self, other world, this moving, the Eros moving towards, beyond, to the not yet known, always this infinite movement, it implies um, the dynamism of becoming. It implies time. In this movement, time, growth, if you like, telos, the dynamism of becoming, temporal becoming, is seen to be holy. It's bawa. It's becoming. But it's not realist. And at the same time, as well, there is also the timelessness here. There's also the dimension of timelessness, of eternity, that we know, as I've pointed out, in in the iconic nature of the imaginal. That we feel that timelessness, that eternal quality, as well as in the unfabricated, that, that which is beyond time. So something in all this kind of gives uh, a sanctity and a place and an importance and a holiness to both the dynamism of becoming and the temporal and to the timeless and the eternity. We go back to that um, line from Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, For the thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. How could this limited world suffice? How could this limited world suffice? So yes, beyond the world, beyond the limited world, beyond the limited world into the transcendent, into the unfabricated, beyond the senses, beyond perception, beyond experience, beyond space, beyond time. Yes, know that. And all the levels going up to that of different kinds of oneness, the eros for the transcendent, the thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. Yes, the transcendent, but yes, also the world sacralized. Why? Because, as I said, it's potentially infinite in its revelations, infinitely revealing, infinitely opening. Through the eros, uh, this limited world becomes a, a, an unlimited world, or in the form of limitation, infinite depths are revealed. So both the transcendent, away from the world, and and the, and the world too, but the world reviewed, seen through the heart of soul making. And both those directions uh, provide us with infinite water. And 
we can, and we can actually move in both of those. We can drink from both of those streams. And in a way, this is what will be a natural movement uh, if Eros is allowed to do its thing, as we've said. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.